Well, we are continuing our study in the book of Mark, um, chapter 13. Uh, We've moved away from public ministry. We looked at a brief little account uh, with the woman who gave her last two mites. And now he is heading out of uh, the temple and out of Jerusalem with his disciples. And they head up uh, to the Mount of Olives, uh, where he teaches his closest disciples. Uh, It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's other than uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, other than uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it is the longest discourse of Jesus in uh, the Gospel accounts, this Olivet Discourse. So let's, with that, turn to Mark 13. We'll just be looking at the first 13 verses, um, and uh, may God bless the reading of his word. Hear God's word. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign? Uh, I'm going to switch over mics. All right. Just remembered. He said, there we go. And Jesus said to them, see that no one leads you astray. I'm sorry, tell us when will be these things, what will be the sign, and when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pain. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask uh, for your grace as we study your word that you would inflame our hearts by your Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember, and maybe you've had something similar like some, similar to this, going on a road trip as a kid. And, you know, it didn't have to be a long road trip, anywhere between an hour to however long. Um, but every kid, including myself, would get at a certain point, and if we didn't articulate it, we thought it, those famous words, are we there yet, Right? Are we there yet? How much longer do we have? When will we get there? For, especially if it was somewhere where we wanted to go, we, we were always so excited. 
And we just we wanted to be there, and we kept asking, are we there yet? Well, in our text this morning, the disciples start a discussion uh, with Jesus that was unexpected. They had just come from that glorious temple built by Herod. Herod, of course, wanted to show off his, his, his prominence, his power, his wealth, all of that. He wanted to show himself as uh, greater than even their great Solomon building this wonderful temple. And so they were there looking at the temple that Herod had built, the magnificence of it. Uh, but Jesus responded quite shockingly by describing its complete and utter destruction. And as they contemplated Jesus' words, they likely thought to themselves, well, if the temple is destroyed, then that has to be the end of all things, because there's no way this temple could be destroyed, so it must be the end. So after heading out of the city, and as they came up uh, the Mount of Olives, and as they sat down, a few of the close disciples came to Jesus, and they said, when will we get there? How will we know that we're there? When is the end coming? Is that the sign? We want a sign that he tells us, how much longer do we have to wait for this? Are we there yet? The disciples were eager for that consummation, for that final intrusion of the kingdom, that the kingdom would finally come in all of its glory. Jesus doesn't get a, give them what they're looking for at all. Rather, Jesus warns and encourages them to endure to the end, whenever the end might come. He'll later say at the conclusion of this Olivet Discourse, he'll say these words, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus' concern is not with when or the signs of the coming of the age, uh, coming of the end of the age. Rather, his concern is for his disciples. His concern was for what they were about to face, the various trials and persecutions that they would endure. Knowing that he was going to die, he was concerned for them, and his desire was that they would not falter, that they wouldn't lose heart, that they wouldn't turn away, but rather they would endure to the end. And Mark records these words to encourage all of us to endure to the end. And this morning, I want us to consider that exhortation of Jesus here in our text. And we're going to take all the exhortations that come out of our little text, and there are four of them, uh, explicit exhortations in the text. Uh, do not be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on guard. Don't be anxious. We're going to look at those four in turn. We'll take each of those. But then finally, I want to come back to uh, this temple and its destruction. So that'll be, we'll just look at that at the end, kind of wrap things up. But what I want us to see, what I, what I want to encourage us to, is that we can find our hope in Christ, the one who enables us to endure to the end. So let's look at each of these exhortations in turn. First, don't be led astray. It seems that it was just a small cohort of his disciples, Peter, James, uh, John, and Andrew, uh, that asked him, when will these things be, and what sign will there be for these things to be accomplished? 
You see, the disciples are not comprehending the fact that Jesus is about to be crucified. They, along with all the crowds, are anticipating a climactic arrival of the coming of the kingdom. Right there. Like, when they're asking those questions, they're not thinking years or decades or millennia down the road. They're thinking about it in terms of near-term events, things that are going to happen soon. After all, what's gone on before their very eyes? Jesus was hailed as king as he entered into Jerusalem, right? He went up and he cleansed the temple. Not only that, but he has excoriated the Pharisees and he's turned away the Sadducees. He's even taken the scribes to task. Here's the king. So in their mind, things are moving, moving quickly towards that eternal messianic kingdom. The kingdom is coming. They're not wrong. They just don't get it. Of course, they had to put out of their minds the fact that Jesus had, in fact, told them that the Son of Man must suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests and scribes. They were told that very explicitly. We read that earlier in the gospel. But they've just, they don't make sense of it, so they just kind of set that aside. What they see with their eyes is the king coming into Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. But that's not what was in Jesus' mind. The thing that was in Jesus' mind, the thing that consumed him, was the fact that he was going to the cross. Just a few short days. And in that moment, his disciples would do what? They would run. They would hide. They would deny him. They would abandon him. One would even betray him. Grief and fear would rule their hearts. And even though he would rise again, he also knew that he would leave them and he would go and he would ascend to the Father. Yes, he'd send his spirit, but he had concern for them that his disciples would be left to endure their own suffering and persecution just as he endured it. In other words, when Jesus was asked the question by the disciples, when is it going to happen and what are the signs that are going to make it, that will make it known to us? He set it aside and he said, my concern is not the when, it's not the signs that might show it when it's coming, but my concern is for you that whatever comes, whatever happens, that you would endure. His disciples had to take that long and difficult path. Who doesn't like a shortcut? Right? Easy solutions to complex problems. Right? That's what we all want. In Monopoly, you know, there's lots of shortcuts. Right? One of those shortcuts in Monopoly is that you can, um, you can g- go to jail, but if you have a special card, it's that get out of jail free card. It's the best card. If you don't have it, you've got to wait or you've got to roll doubles or whatever it is. But if you have that get out of jail free card, you, it's like a shortcut. Jesus knew that there would be those who would come in his name, who would claim to have his power, who would indeed claim even to be him. And they would offer God's people a get-out-of-jail-free card. They'd say, hey, come follow me. I've got the answers. And Jesus is saying, hold up. Pretenders 
who sought glory and fame and who would offer promises that they could not deliver. That, 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 this is the whole world we live in, right? People offering things that there's too good to be true. I remember a time uh, many, not too many years ago, maybe five or so years ago, that there was a couple that came to me and they were very desperate. Um, they had two little girls to care for and the husband had lost his job. And so naturally, the wife and the husband were desperately looking for a job to sustain their family. But in their eagerness to get work, they took on a contract job that required them to put out their own money, right? It's already a warning side, right? Put out your own money, and then you get access to this information. And then if you do enough things, you you can make a a boatload of money, huge amounts. You just take enough contracts. I could see the deception and the allure, right? So get rich quick. If you just invest enough time and money, it'll pay out in the end. It never did. Well, that's what these false messiahs were doing. They were saying, hey, this is the shortcut to the kingdom. I'll help you. I'll help usher it in. Just follow me. Josephus, the Jewish historian, described some of these pseudo-messiahs of the time. He described them this way. He said, for they were deceivers and deluders of the people. And under pretense of divine illumination were for innovations and changes and prevailed on the multitude to act like madmen and went before them in the wilderness, pretending that God would there show them signs of liberty. Right? That's what they wanted. Liberty, freedom, and here's somebody say, I've got it. Forget suffering. Forget endurance. Follow me. It's hard to endure, isn't it? It's hard to wait. When is Jesus coming again? What are the signs? I think it's always a temptation for followers of Christ to want to move things along right? To not to wait for Jesus. And so there's a, there's a temptation to pin our hopes on men and those who are pretenders and deceivers who offer to us some form of power and control. We want to see Jesus come again, to, to right all the wrongs of the world, to usher in a righteous kingdom, and to finally and forever stop powers and principalities of this word that are, world that are against God and the things of God. But friends, there is only one Christ. And he calls us, calls you and I to endure, to not be led astray by the empty promises of pseudo-messiahs. Second thing here, so we don't want to be led astray. Second, Jesus says, do not be alarmed. It's not just false Christ who will come and lead us astray, but it's the very machinations of the world, of the nations, of creation itself, which can make us think that the end is near, right? Jesus says wars and rumors of wars must take place, but that is not the indication that the end is near. Now, why is it? This is a I was curious when I thought about it. Why is it that we see war and conflict and we assume that the end is near? Well, I think there's two reasons. 
I think the first reason is pretty obvious, fairly obvious. Wars are terrible. They're terrible things. They bring devastation and despair and grief. We like to think in the middle of a war, we think life cannot go on much longer like this. There's no possible way. There's nothing good. The end must be near. There is embedded in the terror and tragedy of war a right longing for consummation, for the end of the grief and the pain and the sorrow, and for the restoration of all things. That's correct. That's what we ought to all long for. And it's true with natural disasters as well. They're part and parcel to the groaning of creation for the restoration of all things. Earthquakes, famines, plagues, fires, tsunamis, hurricanes, global warming, pestilence. All of it makes us long for the coming of Jesus, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but 2020 makes me long for the coming of Jesus. But Jesus is saying, don't think the end is coming when these things take place. These terrible things are part and parcel to the broken world that we live in. And as we Christians are called to endure with hope, even amidst the worst horrors that either man can inflict on one another or the most painful natural disasters that God permits as part of the curse of the fall. These things, Jesus says, must take place. The part of the brokenness of our sinful world that cries out for Jesus. That's the easy one. I said there were two reasons why I think we think wars and natural disasters are the indicator that the end is near. The first is because they point to that need, right, that I just described for Jesus to come and write all that's wrong in the world. But I think there's a second reason why wars and rumors of wars cause us to think that the end is near or some terrible natural disaster. We want signs. We want to be able to read the news and make sense of all the craziness that we see in the world. We want to be able to put each global event into a grand narrative. And what it is, hear me out on this, what it is, I think, is our desire for omniscience. We want to know. We want to know all things. We want to be like God. And if we can put all the signs together and piece the puzzle together, we can tell everybody, I know that the end is near. Back when I was in school, fairly young, um, there was uh, the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, was uh, going to meet with Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the president of the USSR. He was the arch enemy, right? And yet Reagan was trying to break down the wall. I mean, that's eventually what happens. But there was resistance for this meeting by some quarters of the Christian world. A man by the name of Robert W. Fade wrote a book called Gorbachev. Has the real Antichrist come? And in that book, he says, the evidence is overwhelming that Gorbachev is 
the Antichrist. And the way he knew this is, well, he examined the birthmark on Gorbachev's head, right? Do you remember this? And he said, that's the mark of the beast indicated in the book of Revelation. And all, all, he had all sorts of other prognostications. And therefore, if Reagan were to go and make peace with this man, it would delay the second coming. Why was this man and other Christians so convinced that both the Cold War and Gorbachev pointed to the imminent coming of Jesus? Because they wanted to be able to read the signs of the times. They wanted omniscience. And there are many examples of this throughout church history. Men who claim they know the day and the hour. I think that it's difficult for us not to know when Jesus is coming again. It's hard. It feels like it's far off. It feels like, when will he ever get here? And we want him to come back. We want him to make all things right. We want to be like God and know and to have all knowledge, to know the beginning from the end so that we don't have to wait any longer. Right? Don't have to have that angst. But here's the thing. We are called as Christians to trust in the Lord, to lean not on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge him as the sovereign one who has all things in his providential hand. He is the one who directs our path. And we can take comfort in Jesus' words here. These are the beginnings of birthing pangs. What does that mean? That means, yes, I am coming again. It isn't going to last forever. So take comfort in that. They may just be beginnings, but Jesus is coming. Don't be alarmed when wars come and wars go, when nations fall, when nations rise, when earthquakes hit, and when disease ravages our planet for a time and then dissipates. It does not mean that God is not at work or that he is not coming again. It's a call to repent and believe and to put our trust in God's sovereign secret will. And the good news is he's given us his will, revealed that we may trust in him and follow him and wait and endure. All right, third, be on guard. Be on guard. There's a shift here in perspective. In the previous section, Jesus is addressing how his disciples were to view the issues surrounding them in the world. He was giving them a cosmic perspective, right? He was saying... uh, I'm giving you a cosmic, cosmic perspective on global concerns. What are you to think and how are you to act when the temple is destroyed and when there's conflict in the region and there are those who are claiming to be messiahs, etc.? I'm giving you cosmic perspective. But now he addresses the personal concerns that they will face, namely that they will be persecuted for their faith. And he says, be on Guard. What does Jesus mean by that? Why does he say be on guard as they go to face the tribunals of men for their faith, as they're delivered up to judges of the world to stand trial because they trust in Jesus? They're going to be called to bear witness. To bear witness. What is that? That's literally to be a martyr. They're going to call, be called to go to be martyr. That's the word. Witness. Martyr. Same word. 
They're going to be called to bear witness. To be on guard is not to shrink back from confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Rather, to be on guard is, is, to, is to know that the persecution's going to come and that you're going to be called to give an account for what you believe. It's to have eternity in mind, even in the face of earthly trials of rejection and even death. And it's not just rejection by the authorities and the tribunals and the synagogues where they get beaten. Did you catch the last part of this section? Rejection by mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, and wives, and husbands, and children. It is hard to imagine But the apostles in the early church did this very thing. They went to the Colosseums. The Colosseum, they were torn up by wild beasts. They were burned at the stake. I want to encourage you, because it's easy to look back in ancient history and it feels very distant, sort of, we can't feel it. And of course, here in the U.S., we enjoy all sorts of liberties, right? So we don't, we don't face the kind of persecution that the early church faced. I want to encourage you to go and read the contemporary accounts of those who bear witness today around the globe. You can go to the website Voice of the Martyrs, and you can, you can read the accounts of people today, now, facing persecution for their faith. You can find out ways to pray and support. Doing that helps, gives us perspective, Right? It gives us perspective on our own trials. It reminds us not to lose heart. If our brothers and sisters around the world aren't losing heart, we don't have to lose heart. Be encouraged. That's what it means to bear witness. To be on guard is to know who the ultimate judge of heaven and earth is and then to entrust our souls to him. But there's another exhortation embedded here in this call to be on guard. And I want to look at this. It says, do not be anxious. It's the last exhortation here. Particularly, this was an exhortation not to be anxious about what to say when the authorities would come for you and you were called to give an account, to give a defense of why you believe. And the grounds for not being anxious are quite profound here. Quite remarkable. We have within us the spirit of the living God. What, what an absolutely astounding truth that I think oftentimes I take for granted. This spirit of God is our comforter. This spirit of God is the one who convicts us of our sin. This spirit of the God is the one who helps us and comes alongside us. He is the one who sanctifies us and gives us life. He is the spirit who preserves us. And empowers us to live in newness of life. But here it says, this spirit will even give you the ability to talk and speak. It it, it actually says, he will give you the words. He, He will speak on your behalf. And this is the real testimony. The real witness bearing that's happening. It is the witness of the power of God at work in us. 
When, when saints go and they profess faith, there's a, I read it at community group, there's a, um, one of the ancient martyrs, a guy by the name of uh, Polycarp. You know, he was 80 some odd years old and he'd been following Jesus his whole life. He was a bishop. And when they came for him, they said, denounce Christ. You know, worship Caesar, essentially is what they said. And he said, I, I, you know, for these past 80 some years, the Lord's been faithful to me. Why would I turn from him now? And he went willingly to die. When they put, and put him on the stake, they were going to put nails in his hands to keep him from running away when they lit the match, right? That would be a natural thing. If somebody lit a match under me, i run away. But Polycarp says, don't bother tying me up. Of course, I'll, I'll stand. I'm not going anywhere. It's an old saying loosely translated from the earthly, it's a loosely translated saying from the early church father Tertullian that goes like this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. See, the spirit of God enables us to be on guard, to stand firm, and even to face death itself and confess Jesus as Lord, as we've been given his spirit. Knowing that we have Christ's spirit in us, we can go forward in full confidence, proclaiming the good news to all peoples in all places. We have confidence because we know that it's, it's not us. It's not our words that transform lives, but it's God at work through us. So Jesus gives a reason, a reason why he doesn't return so quickly. In verse 10, that the world may hear and believe the good news of salvation. Peter says it well in 2 Peter. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason the Lord doesn't come as quickly as we like is so that his word may go out and that he might continue to establish a people for himself. And he uses us to bear witness don't be anxious. When we look at the world and all its travails with war and famine and false messiahs and persecutions, Jesus says, don't worry, for I am with you. My spirit is in you to bear witness about me that the world may know. Finally, and this is conclusion, brings me back to the temple that would be destroyed in 70 A.D., right? So the temple was going to be destroyed not that long from there, 70 A.D. It was a beautiful temple, magnificent artifice that was greater than even Solomon's temple, and it was going to be destroyed. Jesus says, not one stone, these massive stones, not one of them was going to be on top of another. Sure enough, it happens. Rome puts down an insurrection, destroys the temple and raises the city. But the temple was amazing. It was a great work of men, but the temple was not God dwelling with his people. It wasn't. It was the place where God met his people, but it wasn't God dwelling with his people. The place, the temple 
was in fact Christ. It was God dwelling with his people. Jesus says in the Gospel of John when he was challenged, they said, show us a sign that you are indeed who you claim to be. And Jesus says, destroy this temple. And I will, I will, it will rise, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Jesus gave to his disciples the greatest sign of his coming again. They asked for a sign, right? They said, give us a sign that we know so we know when the end comes. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign that the kingdom of God has come. And that is, I'm going to rise again in a few short days. He would be destroyed. He would be laid in the grave. But on that third day, he rose again. The very temple, the dwelling place of God with his people. That's the sign. Friends, when is he coming again? And what sign is there? He's coming again when his purposes of saving a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation is complete. And the sign that he gives is that Jesus is risen from the dead. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed by what you see and experience in this world. Be on guard as you face the trials of this world. Don't be anxious knowing that we have that great guarantee, that deposit of the Spirit in us, and so we are enabled to bear witness to the truth of what? That Jesus is risen from the dead and is coming again to dwell with us for all eternity. Let's pray.